0: is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Father, by word and by spirit we ask. That by your promise, you accomplish your good work
1: among us this day. May the word bear fruit. Help me now to communicate clearly. We ask it in Jesus' name.
0: Amen. We begin a series of sermons today based on our proposed confession of faith, which the elders crafted over the course of several months. Baptists historically have been a confessional people. The earliest Baptist confession, all I want to say, goes back to Simon Peter at Caesarea Philippi. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But that's a little sectarian. So let's say that officially the first Baptist confession one can find is about 1644, the first London Baptist confession. Southern Baptists, which is where we find our home, Have a Confession, The Baptist Faith and Message, recently edited, or as recently as 2000, to which we subscribe and continue to subscribe. What we have produced in this confession is a better, clearer declaration for who we are doctrinally. It serves as a public identifier. If somebody wants to know, so what does Boulevard believe? What are you actually like? This is the declaration. It's also the parameters for how teaching will be done here. Our confession defines what we believe, the central thing. Our church covenant is a declaration, this we will do. A confession is, this is what we believe. And Baptists historically have included both those ideas. We say, this is to the world and to the church and to others. Here's what we believe to be true. And then here are the things that we will do. Now, I will admit at the outset, again, this is different than my typical sermonic pattern, where I start at the beginning of a book, verse, chapter 1, verse 1, and preach through to the end of the book. We shall return to that, but for the next few weeks we'll want to make clear what it is that we are saying. Now, sometimes Baptists get nervous about creeds and confessions. I often heard it said, Baptists are not a creedal people. Well, it all depends on what you mean by what you say. Definitions always matter. The ancient creeds of the church and the declarations of who Jesus Christ is as both fully human and fully divine, we would affirm. Further, those that define the Trinity in a God-honoring and scripturally accurate way, we would also affirm. But be careful if your attitude is this, well, I don't need any creed, I don't need any confession besides the Bible. Okay? Bully for you. What do you mean when you say that? When you say, all I need is my Bible, I agree to an extent. The question becomes, what do you mean when you say that? And the minute you begin defining and explaining what you mean, you have engaged in theology. You have engaged in a confession, a declaration, a summary of what you think the text actually says. The starting point for this series of messages is, we believe, the proper starting point, and we base this In the New Hampshire Confession from 1833, which you can find online or we've got a copy of it out there as well, here's what it says, the Scriptures. We believe the Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired and is a perfect treasure of heavenly instruction, that it has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter that reveals the principles by which God will judge us, and therefore is and shall remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and opinions should be tried. We anchor ourselves unapologetically to this foundational idea, the Word of God, Scripture, is our authority. Now, why does this matter? Because, my friend, this has always been a battle engaged throughout the history of the church. What is it that sets the standard? What is it that you must believe? And how do you come to that determination? Young people, you're going to face this. Many of you, as you're coming out of high school and into college, and some of you even now in high school and earlier, your faith is being challenged. Some of you out in the work world, you're finding your faith being challenged. And sometimes the idea seems to creep up, well, now that was good enough for a childlike faith. But now I need something a little more nuanced, a little more Thorough, a little more intellectually respectable. Paul actually said to Timothy, Remember what you learned when you were little. Kevin DeYoung, in his book, Taking God at His Word, I thought this was brilliant. Before chucking your faith that you were taught as a child, think about those from whom you learned it. I went to a middle of the road Christian college where the religion professors were often liberal. I saw many of my classmates have their faith deconstructed and never built up again in a healthy way. When people ask me why I didn't go down the same path the best answer I have besides noting the grace of God is that I trust is that I trust what my parents and my upbringing brought me more than my professors. I had doubts as a college student. There were new questions I didn't know how to answer, but what kept me anchored with confidence in what I'd learned as a child and, in, and those from whom I'd learned it. One time on a panel, Young noted somebody asked uh, John Piper, why did he conclude inerrancy is true? And here's, here's the first thing he said. First thing he said surprised everybody. Here it is, quote, because my mama told me it's true, End quote. But that wasn't a throwaway line or a remark crafted for effect. Piper captured something deeply true in many of our lives and deeply biblical. Now hear these words. It's not necessarily a sign of growth to move past the faith of your childhood. And not necessarily a weakness to believe the same thing throughout your whole life. I thank God that in my own case, the issue of the authority of Scripture was settled very early in my Christian life. I, I didn't have a lot of understanding what it meant. I didn't understand all the ins and outs that you have to think through to do this well. But my friend, I always had alarm bells go off when somebody brought an idea that could not be anchored in the text of scripture or in scripture was twisted in a particular way. Something in me, I'll rephrase that,
1: someone in me raised an alarm.
0: What the text says is what matters. And folks, we've not come to this place without a lot of shed blood and difficult days. We have a Bible everywhere, right? If you, most folks, if you're Christian, you've got a phone, you've got a Bible, right? I don't know about you, but I, I have so many Bibles, there are times I'm a little bit embarrassed by how many Bibles I actually possess. Luther, while sitting at table with some students, recalled this. Now think about this, brethren. Think about what he says here. When I was 20 years old, I had not yet seen a Bible. This is in Europe. This is in Germany. In the latter part of the 1400s, early 1500s, till he was 20 years old, he'd never seen a Bible. I thought there were no Gospels and Epistles except that which was written in the Sunday Postles. That's the brief sermons that go in the service. Finally, I found a Bible in the library, and forthwith I took it with me into the monastery. I began to read, to reread, and to read it over again to the great astonishment of Dr. Staupitz, who was his primary professor and his father confessor. Twenty years old, in the church all his
1: life, had never seen a Bible. finally gets one and won't let it go my
0: friend it was through that reading of scripture that led to the protestant reformation the reading of the psalms the reading of romans the reading of galatians now what am i driving at we're about to actually get to the sermon you ready for this our tendency is that we prefer our word or anybody's word over the word of god that is our natural inclination We prefer our word or anybody else's word over the word of Almighty God. And it is only by absolute trust in God's word that we are secured by God's Son and His salvation, only by that trust in His word. Three things I want you to take from this today as we consider this first statement of the confession. Number one, Scripture is inspired. Now, what is it that we mean by that? What we're saying is that Scripture is God's revelation to us. Now, revelation comes to us from God in two ways. We've looked at this briefly as we looked at uh, Romans, the first chapter. The first way that revelation comes to us is what we call natural revelation. That is, ourselves and the world around us tell us something about God. Paul says it lets us know of His divine nature and His power. There is enough evidence in the creation to tell you there is a God and that he is powerful. That's not a hard conclusion to reach. But natural revelation is never saving revelation, there is not enough revelation in nature to teach you that you're a sinner and that you need a Savior and that that Savior is Jesus Christ. That's why we need beyond natural revelation, special revelation. What we are affirming is that the Scripture is the voice of God. The Latin for that, the vox dei. And further, that it is the verbum dei. That is, it is the Word of God. God has spoken, God has revealed Himself. Please do not let anyone tell you that it doesn't make sense that God would reveal Himself through the words of a book. Why should that be thought peculiar? The apex of His creation, human beings, communicate on a level that nothing else in all creation can do. Right? We have words. We string together sounds, and they mean things. I hear people say, "Well, well, whales do that too. Whales don't come with a dictionary. There's never a humpback who has attempted to craft a thesaurus. We communicate with one another through words. I know, you can teach an ape to sign. You can't teach him how to write a book. Why is it thought weird that God would reveal Himself through words? Scripture tells us that God speaks the world into existence. And it's obvious that in that understanding of the world, God would speak. And what we say in that is not only that Scripture is inspired, but further that it's authoritative. That is, what Paul says here, look at that phrasing in verse 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God, breathed out by God. Four words, in the original language, one word, theonoustos, literally, God breathed. God breathes out Scripture. Now for us, the terminologies that we use today, we talk about the infallibility of Scripture. What we mean by that is the Scripture cannot err. We'll use the term inerrancy to describe that it does not err. Some of us recall the battle for the Bible. In fact, on my shelf is the book from 1979, Harold Denzel, The Battle for the Bible. Lenzel recognized the attack on Scripture, and we saw it in our own Southern Baptist Convention. Our seminaries first waffled, then slipped, and then dropped a full commitment to inspiration. The battle first sounded in the 60s because a seminary professor wrote a little book called The Message of Genesis, Ralph Elliott, in which he contended that the first chapters of Genesis were meant to be legend and saga. They were never intended to be taken seriously, As history. In fact, that was his approach to the entirety of the book. Well, folks got a little alarmed about that. And then they got even more alarmed when the first volume of the Broadman Bible Commentary published by the convention, by Lifeway, what is today Lifeway, came out with the Genesis volume by a professor named Davies from Britain that affirmed the same approach to the book of Genesis. And the alarms start going off. Finally, leads to the conservative resurgence that took place in the 80s, even extended into the early 90s, where Southern Baptists became the first convention, the first denomination, to actually turn back from a liberal perspective toward a conservative one. Now, today, we talk about the authority of Scripture.
1: Sometimes I think we feel like we've got to hang our head a little bit. I I believe the Bible. Never hang your head. I believe the Bible. What it says. God has
0: spoken. What He says is before us. When we affirm the inspiration, the authority of Scripture, when we speak about the Scriptures coming to us as revelation, What we are saying, please hear this, is not that the Bible addresses every single thing in life. It doesn't. But everything it addresses, it addresses truly. And while it may not answer every question you have, it answers all the questions that you need answered. Who is God? Who are you? What's your place in this world? How can one be reconciled to God? I know some of you are going to be frustrated because I've left a lot of stuff out. Well, folks, there's a big, big area here. We're scratching the surface. Scripture's inspired. Secondly, Scripture's understandable. This is what theologians call the purposcutivity of Scripture. (laughs) Funny word. Purposcuity. What does it mean? Well, simply this. While the Scriptures contain some things that are hard to understand, most of it's abundantly clear. I'm reminded of the line from Mark Twain, who said, you know, it's never really bothered me, the texts in the Bible I couldn't understand, it's the ones that I understood that really gave me fits. Most of it, it's not that we struggle to interpret what it says, what it says is abundantly clear. Scripture can be understood. This is an essential idea, the idea of private interpretation, that you can and should, as an individual, read and hear and study the Bible, that you can understand it. Now, don't let this degenerate into me and my Bible out here in the middle of nowhere Look what I found. Ain't nobody ever seen this in the Bible before. Look what I found. Isn't that good? No, it's not. Or that sad little uh, saying, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. No, my friend, that's a lie. God said it, that settles it. Your belief in it has no bearing at all upon its truthfulness. God has spoken. We affirm sola scriptura, scripture alone, not solo scriptura, me and my Bible alone. All I'm saying to that, my friend, is this. You read the Bible individually and you can understand it. Get suspicious of anybody who says, well, you know, if, if you had the gifts I have, you'd understand what I'm talking about. Or if you've been in school as long as I have, you'd get it. You're just not quite smart enough, or you don't have the secret yet to understand the Bible. My friend, this is reality. The Bible is quite understandable, and the Spirit of God always attends the Word of God to help make clear what the text actually says. When we say the Scripture's understandable, we mean it's clear. You can understand it. And that the central theme throughout this whole text is this. The sufficiency, the primacy of Jesus Christ. Everything points to Him. Has the author of Hebrews opened his book? God, who in many times, in many ways, hath spoken to His people by through the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us through His Son. Or if you want another, consider Jesus on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples unnamed. They're walking along, you remember the story, Jesus is with them, He joins them, He's hidden His identity from them, and He asks them, so, hey guys, what's the news? What's been going on? I'm paraphrasing, but this is
1: the essence of the story. You've been in a cave? Don't you know? Know what? Well, about Jesus. And they've
0: put him to death, and we thought he was the one, but now we don't know what to think because somebody said that they went to his tomb and he isn't there anymore, and we just, we're just flummoxed.
1: I'm sure there's the Greek word there somewhere for flummoxed. And they said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe
0: all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now listen to this. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I used to say I'd love to have heard that Bible study. that sermon. Right? Jesus telling you everything from Moses to the prophets that was about him. And then one day it occurred to me,
1: I've got the sermon. It's Matthew through Revelation. You've got it, folks. What
0: you have in the New Testament, I believe, was what Jesus told the disciples, if you will, an outline on that walk. What you see in the New Testament is the sermon, if you will, to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Scripture is understandable, and it points to Jesus Christ. My friend, if you're not a Christian this morning, let me make this abundantly clear. One of the clearest things in all of Scripture is the way of salvation, and the only way of salvation is repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus Christ that is the gospel. And there is no, no doubt about that. It is only through faith in Jesus Christ that we are saved. All right. Scripture is inspired. Scripture is understandable. Last one, Scripture is sufficient. Now, some will ask, what about tradition? And please hear what I say. Tradition's not necessarily a bad thing. Spurgeon put it this way It seems odd that certain men who talk so much of what the Holy Spirit reveals to themselves should think so little of what he's revealed to others.
1: Now you see, traditionalism is a problem. Traditionalism,
0: to cite the little Did he? Traditionalism is (laughs) the dead faith of the living.
1: Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Tradition is
0: extraordinarily democratic. It's giving your ancestors a
1: vote. There is a place for the tradition as we look back. But my friend,
0: when tradition contradicts the text, therein is where you have a problem. The text must have supremacy. Packer put it this way, tradition is the fruit of the Spirit's teaching activity from the ages. As God's people have sought to understanding of Scripture, it's not infallible, but it's not negligible either. We impoverish ourselves if we don't look at it. Tradition can show up as belief, it can show up as practice, but it can
1: also show up in ways that are not helpful What we assert is
0: the scripture is proven revelation, and we hear from God through the scripture. Now, tradition isn't that big a deal. I mean it is. Baptists have had their own traditions, you know, you know if Churches have fallen out over which side of the platform you had the pen on, or what color the carpet was. You can go down the list of things that have to do with tradition. But here's another that I think is essential. Scripture is sufficient, not your feelings. The danger of becoming what R.C. Sproul called the sensual Christian I only behave in the ways that I feel that I should. I only like the Scriptures. The ones that make me feel good are the ones that I'm going to heed. I will do my feeling, and that's how I'll interpret Scripture. My friend, how you feel about the text is absolutely
1: insignificant. I'll go another step further. Scripture is sufficient,
0: not an inner voice.
1: Now, here's where I start getting in people's wheelhouse just a little bit. Over and over again, you hear people say things. Well, God told me. He did what?
0: God told me. Okay, when, when, when did he do this? More importantly, how did he do this?
1: Well, I heard a voice. You heard a voice. Like from heaven? Oh, no. It's that that quiet voice inside. Okay. How do you know it was his voice? I just know. And
0: over and over again, my friend, as a pastor, I've heard these. Well, God told me to do this. God told me to do that. God led me this way. God led me that way. God did. And over and over again, the
1: outcomes have been less Than ideal. What am I saying? Let me quote from another brother on this. Trusting in
0: God's will of decree is good. That is, God has a secret will, He's going to do what He does. Trusting God in that, that's a good thing. Following His will of desire is obedient. That is, when God says to do something, commands you, in the text of Scripture, you do it. And if he says, don't do it, this is real hard, right? If God says, don't do something, what should your response be? Not going to do it. Waiting for God's will of direction is a mess. It's bad for your life, harmful to your sanctification, and allows too many Christians to be passive tinkerers who strangely feel more spiritual, the less they actually do. God is not a magic eight ball we shake up and peer into whenever we have a decision to make. He's a good God who gives us brains, shows us the way of obedience, and invites us to take risks for Him. We know God has a plan for our lives. That's wonderful. The problem is we think He's going to tell us the wonderful plan before it unfolds. We feel like we can know and need to know what God wants every step of the way. But such preoccupation with finding God's will, as well-intentioned as the desire may be, is more folly than freedom.
1: And to that I will append my hearty amen. You know how I see God's will for my life? I look behind me and see where I've been. That was God's will. I believe that. What about God's will for the future? None
0: of my business. My business is to be obedient. My business is to be faithful.
1: Well, man, it's hard to make decisions. Always has been. Always will be. Do you understand what kind of grace this grants you, Christian? Well, I've got this decision. I can go this way, or I can go that way. Which way do I go? How do I find out? Pray. Oh, good. And he's going to tell me. Hmm? No? make a decision. Well, what if I
0: go the wrong way? Oh my, then the whole thing is doomed.
1: God's eternal plan is absolutely ruined. Your life will never be the same again.
0: Here's what I'll tell you, folks. The danger is when you think, if you go, if you hear from God and you get the right path, that everything's going to go well, you're setting yourself up for failure. Because I'm here to tell you there is not a path you're going to walk no matter where you go that is not going to be fraught with difficulty and struggle and disappointment and pain.
1: Confusion? That doesn't mean you miss God. I've had people say, well, I went down this path
0: and obviously I missed God because if I'd gone that way, none of this stuff would have happened. And I want to say, yeah, it might have been worse.
1: Why am I hammering that? My brothers and sisters, the scripture is
0: sufficient. Well, I I don't know. What's he going to do? Here's what he's going to do all things work together for good to those
1: who love God and are called according to his purpose. Or the book of Deuteronomy the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed.
0: To us and our children forever.
1: Now I know some of you are real disappointed. Well, you're just not very spiritual, Pastor.
0: Let me say that based on the way you're thinking, I consider that a compliment if that's how you see it. I will walk under His Word, I will hear what He says. Think of it this way. Let me use this illustration and we'll draw this to a close. Consider the story of Esther. Kevin the Young points this out. Notice what you don't read in the story of Esther. You remember the whole thing? Esther's taken in to be part of the harem of the king. The whole thing with Haman and Mordecai and try to kill all the Jews and she's a Jew and He goes to her and asks, you know, her uncle says, Mordecai says, help. And she's concerned because she can't go into the king's presence unless he summons her. And if she goes in and he doesn't extend his scepter, she dies. Think about this. We don't read of Esther seeking any divine word from the Lord, though a discerning reader may see God's at work in Mordecai's advice to her. She has no promise as to what the future would look like. All she knew was that saving her people was a good thing. God didn't tell her what would happen if she obeyed or exactly what she should do to ensure the success. She had to take a risk for God. Here were her words, if I perish, I perish. That was her courageous cry. Esther didn't wait for weeks or months trying to assert God's will for her life. Before she acted, she simply did what was right and forged ahead without any special word from God. If the king extended to her the golden scepter, praise the Lord. If he didn't, she died. Esther was more man than most men I
1: know, myself included. Ow. I know some of you say, well, what about the voice, that voice I hear?
0: We've talked about this before. I'll summarize quickly. You know who the voice is?
1: It's you. You talk to yourself internally. Every culture has the inner voice.
0: It's cross-cultural. Well, what happens when it sounds like God? Praise the Lord. The work of sanctification and the Word of God has gotten deep enough into your heart and soul that in your mind, you're being reminded of what Scripture says.
1: You're being reminded to trust God. You're being reminded to live faithfully. Oh,
0: Christian, why take so much time on this? Here is what I plead with you, my brother, my sister in Christ. You have in your hand the very
1: Word of God. A lifetime of study will never exhaust it. Read the
0: Bible, listen to the Bible, feed on the Bible, live in the Bible. Brothers and sisters, I pray God, as long as this church exists, as long as there is a ministry in this place,
1: that the Word of God is what drives every single thing that's done. Barnhouse, when he went to be pastor at 10th Presbyterian, he was there at Philadelphia from
0: 1927 to 1960. He entered the pulpit a week or two after he came as pastor, and he placed his notes in his Bible and hymn book there, and he decided to open the pulpit Bible, that big pulpit Bible. And he opened it to Isaiah 55, which is, My word goes out from my mouth, it will not return to me empty, but accomplish what I desire. And he found that it was very worn at that place. In fact, his predecessors had done the very same thing. He discovered the same thing in the 119th Psalm, which is all about the Word of God. They were so worn that they had to move it a page or two because their stuff wouldn't stay in place. They were tearing the pages in the pulpit Bible. That attitude toward the Scripture, the centrality of the Word. My friends, let this be what we confess. The Scripture is God's Word. And we will hear it and we will heed it and we will follow him. And this will be our food, our drink, our reason. And from that we will preach Christ and his glorious
1: gospel. May we so confess. Father, our prayer now is that we would believe Have great confidence in the trustworthiness, the clarity, and the
0: sufficiency of this Your Word. May we in this Word find the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing in response to
2: God's Word. Let's sing this hymn that we recently introduced, Grace. Your grace that leads the sinner home from death to life forever and sings the song of righteousness by blood and not by merit. Your grace. Your grace that reaches far and wide to every tribe and nation has called my heart to enter in the joy of your salvation. By grace I am redeemed By grace I am restored. And now, and now I freely walk into the arms of Christ, my Lord. Let's sing that once more. By grace I am redeemed. By grace I am restored. And now I freely walk into the arms of Christ my Lord.